Well, no doubt you are well aware that there is a huge debate going on in our country about the authority of the presidency. But without getting into the debate itself, let me simply note that the authority of an American president, no matter who he is or who he thinks he is, pales in comparison to the authority of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declared, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He was God in the flesh, and as such, he was omnipotent. But he didn't flaunt his authority. In fact, he often limited the expression of his authority. When facing the cross, the song says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. The text actually says he could have had at his disposal more than 12 legions of angels, and there were 6,000 men in a Roman legion. So that's 72,000 angels. But the number is irrelevant because the only thing keeping him here was his love for us. He didn't need help to escape. He chose to stay. Just because he had the power and the authority to do something didn't mean he did it. However, he did express his authority in ways that made it very clear to those who had eyes to see that he was indeed a man with authority. And in our text for today, we see him as a man who calls with authority, who teaches with authority, and who commands with authority. We're still in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning with verse 16. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now, if we only had Mark's account, we would assume this was the first encounter Jesus had with these men, but it, it wasn't. The Apostle John tells us that Andrew was introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist nearly a year earlier, and that Andrew introduced his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. It also tells us that Jesus invited Philip to follow him and that Philip invited Nathaniel to join them. Now, John doesn't mention any other of Jesus' early disciples by name. I think he intentionally avoided doing that so he wouldn't point fingers at himself and mention himself. He was very cautious about that. But we do know 
that a band of disciples were with Jesus when he went through Samaria on his way into Galilee. But the disciples who followed Jesus during this year of obscurity were apparently just part-time disciples. Well, as we mentioned last week, Mark ignores completely that first year of Jesus' ministry. And now, as Mark begins the account of Jesus' great Galilean ministry, he chooses to introduce us to Jesus' full-time disciples. Now, Luke gives us more details about the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And he actually places it after the events Mark records in verses 21 through 39, but before the healing of the leper recorded in verses 40 through 45, which we'll be reading in the next week or two. Well, chances are pretty good that Luke's chronology of events is more accurate than Mark's. Luke says in his introduction to his gospel that he is writing out the events of, life, of Jesus' life in consecutive order. Mark doesn't really care about that so much. He's more interested in giving us snapshots of Jesus than following an exact timeline. He simply chose to introduce us to Peter, Andrew, James, and John before taking us to Capernaum. And as we've noted, his record of their call is abbreviated. Well, Luke tells us that Jesus actually used Peter's boat to preach from and told him to pull out into the deep or put out into the deep after he finished speaking uh, to the crowds on the shore. It was also then that Peter, at Jesus' introduction, made his first miraculous catch of fish. James and John who were partners with Peter and Andrew, had to be summoned to haul in the catch. So there are a lot of details that Mark overlooks. He just wants to give us enough detail to picture Jesus as a man with authority. A man who says, follow me, and men drop everything and follow him. Now, the fact that the first men that Jesus called into full-time service were fishermen shouldn't be overlooked. Jesus didn't go to the halls of learning or seats of power to call his first disciples. He went to the shores of the Sea of Galilee and called fishermen. They were common, hardworking men engaged in the regular pursuits of life. They weren't mystics or super spiritual men awaiting the call of God on a mountaintop or in a monastery somewhere. They were just common fishermen making a living and providing for their families. But then again, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would call common working men to be his first disciples. Moses was a shepherd when God appeared to him in a burning bush. Gideon, you remember, was threshing wheat when the angel hailed him as a mighty man of valor. Elisha was plowing behind oxen when Elijah placed his mantle on him. You know, God delights in taking that which is thought to be ordinary and making it into something extraordinary. And Jesus said to some fishermen, follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus not only saw their potential, he knew what he could do with them. He could change them. He could make them into something they could never become without him. And they obviously sensed it as well and were willing to leave everything to follow him. They were willing to walk away from a good life, a secure life, into the unknown because Jesus said, follow me. They were willing to leave their dreams behind. And so was their father. Don't miss the fact that Zebedee was willing to give up his dreams for his sons so they could follow a man who called with such authority that they could do nothing else but follow him. Jesus is a man with authority. He calls with authority and he teaches with authority. Let's read on. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When Jesus began his great Galilean ministry, he relocated from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum, the largest of 30 cities that bordered on the Sea of Galilee. And on the Sabbath, as was his custom and the custom of every good Jew, he went to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was not the same as the temple. We often confuse them today because synagogues are often called temples. But there was only one temple, and it was in Jerusalem. It was a place where sacrifices were made and major religious celebrations were conducted. Synagogues could be found in every town where there were at least ten Jewish men. They came into existence during the Babylonian captivity when the Jews had no temple and continued as local institutions of teaching and instruction even after the temple was rebuilt. Now, every synagogue had a ruler who was in charge and other officials who oversaw the teaching and the distribution of alms and serving of meals to the needy. Scribes, those who studied the law and wrote out legal documents, and rabbis, who were the most learned of the scribes, were often associated with a particular synagogue. But the synagogues did not have one individual who functioned as the preacher or the teacher. Teaching responsibilities were shared, and when a visiting teacher was in town, they welcomed him to read the passage from the Torah that was selected that day, and then to comment on it, and that's what Jesus was doing here. There was, however, a difference in the way Jesus taught. The scribes would almost never share their own conclusions about a passage of Scripture. They were primarily conveyors of oral tradition and quoters of others. You know, Rabbi so-and-so said, and tradition tells us. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with personal authority. Now, Mark doesn't record for us Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but in Matthew's account, we find him saying time and again things like, 
You have heard that the ancients were told, but I say to you. And you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. There's no reason to doubt that he used similar phrases while teaching in the synagogue, and the people were amazed. They couldn't believe it. The word used for amazed means to be struck in the mind. They were blown away. They couldn't believe the authority with which Jesus spoke. But, of course, not everyone was impressed. Obviously, the scribes sitting there wouldn't have liked it. And those who didn't want to hear something new or be challenged to rethink long-held opinions wouldn't have liked it. In fact, the week before, his message had not been so well received. He was in his hometown. And Luke records it for us. I think we need to read the entire account to fully understand the authority with which Jesus spoke. So let's turn to Luke. And he came to Nazareth, and where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at his gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt, you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, I truly say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of their city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, I love that, he went his way. And he came to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his teaching was with authority. Now, admittedly, Jesus got rather confrontational in his hometown synagogue when he made a veiled reference to the fact that he was the one referred to by Isaiah. The people missed it. They were just proud of the fact that someone who grew up in their town and went to school in their synagogue could speak with such eloquence. And he knew uh, while they wanted him to 
perform a miracle as they had heard he had done elsewhere, that they would miss the implication of the miracles. They would be amazed, but they wouldn't believe Joseph's boy was really a prophet. So he gave them a history lesson that they didn't want to hear. And there's real danger in speaking with authority a message people don't want to hear. You know, I've never had anyone try to throw me off a cliff. But I have had people who have known me for years accuse me of making personal attacks from the pulpit and of abusing my position as a preacher because I said with authority what I was convinced God's word was saying, and it hit them personally. It can be dangerous to teach with authority, but Jesus did it. And anyone who would be faithful to the authority of God's word must be willing to do so as well. There are a lot of things that are very unpopular today. Churches, preachers, are being silenced and called to be politically correct in all things. We can't do that. We can't do that. If God has spoken, we must speak it. Now, not, not everything a preacher says should be said with absolute authority. There are many things in God's word we must teach with a, a tentative understanding. Not everything in God's word is crystal clear. But some things are. And when a preacher becomes convinced through diligent study and a reliance on the Holy Spirit to enlighten him, that he is determined what God is saying, it must be spoken with authority. Now, not absolute, unquestionable authority, but with conviction and confidence. We need voices that speak with authority today. Voices that can be trusted. And it's my prayer that those who would speak for God, are speaking his words, not their own, not their own. Jesus could speak with absolute authority, and he did so because he was unquestionably a man with authority. He calls with authority, he teaches with authority, and he commands with authority. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they were debating among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, are you a bit surprised to discover that a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue? You know, we expect the possessed to be hanging out in cemeteries, not church. And we assume the devil is somewhere else this morning. But I assure you, 
He's here. He's waiting to snatch away the word of God from hard hearts before it can sink in. He's here to distract us with the worries of the world so the word of God will be choked out and remain unfruitful. He's here to divide the body and disrupt the work of God. And he was present in the synagogue when Jesus spoke. Now, he attempted Jesus in the wilderness and had lost. But Luke says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And this was one of those opportune times. The people were listening to Jesus, and they were responding positively to his authoritative teaching. So the devil disrupted the service with the person he had possessed. Now, Mark is going to picture Jesus encountering the demon-possessed several times. So our understanding of this phenomenon will increase as we continue studying through Mark's gospel and encounter them. All I want to note today is that Jesus had complete authority over this unclean spirit. He simply said, be quiet or be muzzled and come out of him. There is no religious ritual, no exorcism as practiced by the professionals, simply a word of command. That's all it took. And the demon had to leave. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He commands the unclean spirits, and they have no choice but to obey him. He could do the same with us. He could command us and force us to do things. But he doesn't. He lets us choose to obey him. He calls us and invites us to follow him. He promises to change us and to give our life eternal significance. He teaches us the truth so we can confidently share the truth with others in a world that needs to hear the truth. But he doesn't force us to do anything. He does, however, invite us to acknowledge his authority by surrendering to his will. Again, we live in a day when authority is hard to, to embrace. We've seen it abused so many times that many of us have become skeptical of anyone who speaks with authority. And so we go through life not knowing what's right and what's wrong, what's true, what's not. We're afraid someone is going to point a finger at us and accuse us of not being pluralistic or embracing others if we speak 
with finality, the truth is revealed in God's word. We must speak the truth. Jesus spoke the truth. His word is truth. We need to study it diligently. We need to discuss it openly. You need to spend time interacting with your brothers and sisters to discern what it's saying so you can share in this world the truth. A world that doesn't want to hear it. We speak with authority, but we just speak in love. Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but to save us. He hasn't called us to judge the world, to share good news with the world. But before they'll accept good news, they have to believe the bad news. So don't be afraid to speak the truth. And if you personally have not responded to the authority of Christ in your own life, I pray that you'll surrender to his will and you really make him your Lord. Let's stand.